Okay, you guys. This is the one-year anniversary of the LIC Reading Series. Thank you for the applause. Hi, this is Catherine Losota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event that I founded at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens in April 2015. This week on the podcast, we are going back to 2016 for our very first anniversary event, which was held on April 12th, 2016, and featured the writers Alexander Chi, Jonathan Lee, and Natalie Harnett. In this episode of the podcast, you're going to hear the readings from that event. And before the readings, you'll hear each writer share a story about Queens because I ask readers to do that always at LIC Reading Series since we're so proud to be in the borough of Queens. In our next episode of our podcast, you can hear the panel discussion from this event. So let's get started with the one-year birthday party and our readings from April 12th, 2016 with Alexander Chi, Jonathan Lee, and Natalie Harnett. And we're going to start with Natalie. Big applause for Natalie. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about Natalie. She has an MFA from Columbia and has been awarded an Edward Albia Fellowship, a Summer Literary Seminars Fellowship, and a Vermont Studio Center Writers Grant. Her fiction has been a finalist for the Mary McCarthy Prize, the Midlist Press First Series Award for the novel, the Glimmer Train Short Story Award for New Writers, and the Ray Bradbury Short Story Fellowship. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in the Chicago Quarterly Review, the Irish Echo, the Madison Review, the MacGuffin, and the New York Times. Her debut novel, which is available here from the Story Bookshop, is called The Hollow Ground, and it won the 2015 John Gardner Fiction Book Award, the 2014 Appalachian Book of the Year Award, and was longlisted with the 2016 International Dublin Literary Award. It is an Amazon and Audible bestseller, a Goodreads book group worthy title, a Library Journal's debuts with Buzz selection, and a San Diego Magazine's five books to read this month selection. She lives on Long Island in northeastern Pennsylvania with her husband and child. She's traveled here, right, for for this very event? Just from Long Island. Well, that's far. But most importantly... Natalie grew up in Queens. Let's give a round of applause to Natalie. Thank you. Can everyone hear me okay? Let me draw. Yep. Okay. Is this good? Yeah. Um, my Queen story is that I grew up in Queens, and um, my family has lived there for over 100 years. And one of my earliest memories is um, walking down the block to my um, great-grandparents' house and being shown the room where my great-grandfather's speakeasy was. And then being shown this um, sort of like hidden compartment in the wall where I was told he hid the booze during raids from the cops. And it was only later that I learned that that was actually a dumb waiter, and so he would put the bottles of booze into that, and then my great-grandmother would pull them up into the kitchen. And so that's a story that actually appears in my second novel. Um, but tonight I'm reading from my debut, which is The Hollow Ground. Um, and it's, just, it's a book inspired by the coal mine fires uh, that took place in Pennsylvania. So this is the prologue. We walk on fire or air so daddy liked to say. Basement floors, too hot to touch. Steaming green lawns in the dead of winter. Sinkholes, quick and sudden, plunging open at your feet. Where the hollowed out ground didn't burn, it collapsed or sank. Here is what's known as the anthracite coal region of Pennsylvania, fed by the largest vein of anthracite coal in the world. That coal was blasted 
appalled, breathed, and swallowed by our daddy's daddies and by theirs before them. And when those mines shut down, those snaking black tunnels were left to flood, to shift. They were left to burn. Burning more than coal, I tell you. When I was still curled and wet in my ma's belly, those mines burned my memory. Burned me with the want to see them for myself. To enter their long, sloping darkness and know what my daddy went through before whatever it was got broke inside him. I'm not saying I knew what I'd uncover when I crawled and scraped my way into that narrow monkey shaft. I'm not saying I knew the secrets I freed from there would change us permanently for worse or better. I'm just saying that sometimes what we seek is something we hope with all our blood and bone we'll never find. Part one, 1961, Pennsylvania. When Ma was seven years old, her heart churned sour. She said it never turned sweet again. But I remember a time, long before the mine fires burned beneath our towns, when Ma's eyes glowed like sunlit honey, when her voice rose and fell as pleasantly as a trickling creek. While brother was swelling up Ma's belly, or flailing around in the crib, or crawling on the brown linoleum of the trailer over by Murcher's dump, we were happy. The thing that changed Ma wasn't there. But I remember the moment it arrived. Me and Ma were playing tiddlywinks at the kitchen table. Daddy was still in bed, watching us from his cot in the living room and telling a story about the tiddlywinks queen and princess. Back then, I was so young and stupid, I thought all Daddy slept that way, separate from the rest of us, dozing till noon. Brother scribbled chalk on the kitchen floor, trying his best to make that cruddy linoleum look pretty. Through the kitchen window came this light, the color of swallowtail or goldfinch wings. I have never seen a light like that again. It felt like it shot through the slats of my ribs, searing me with a kind of happiness maybe all kids feel because they don't know any better. But then deep in brother's plump little throat formed the squeal of delight. Within seconds he was up, standing all on his own and charging toward us with his first steps. Ma churned, spreading her arms, cooing like a morning dove. But when he fell into her, sobs shot from her mouth like the fire itself had flamed up through the floor and singed the skin from her bones. I lunged from my chair and pulled the baby from her arms, thinking he'd hurt her, which I guess he did, because right then her eyes went from liquidy amber to the scratchy, dull color of sassafras bark. Her voice ever afterward bobbed with nettles. Whenever I reminded Ma this moment, she said her heart forgot it was broken, but then remembered. How can you make it forget again, I'd ask. Over and over, I'd ask. But her mouth merely pressed into that tight squiggle that made me think of the worms I dug up for fishing. The worms still lived after you cut a piece of them off. I guess that's how it was for Ma. A piece of her was gone, and for a little while, she forgot about it. When I woke that February morning, the morning that changed our lives, the pinkish air pushing in the open window told of snow. I snuggled closer underneath the covers toward Auntie and pictured the mine fire flaming along the veins of coal beneath our town, veins as numerous and intricate as the blue ones on Auntie's legs. The fire lived by sucking air through the ground and burping up gases through our walls. I sucked in and blew out to see my breath form a cloud, which made me think of the Holy Ghost. A white blob was how I pictured him. A white blob hovering over the apostles' heads before burning them all with tongues of flame. 
Auntie used to say the flames gave the apostles more than the gift of language. The flames gave them understanding. I thought if that was true, perhaps the fire eating the underground mine shafts of Center Reach was trying to tell me something, to give me its own kind of wisdom. I'm Bridget, named after Saint Bridget, who was named, some say, after the pagan goddess of fire, a saint who made the sores of a leopard disappear, smoothed the cracks in a madman's mind, a healer like Auntie, though Auntie never allowed anyone to call her a healer. A healer. Something healed through her, she said, explaining that she was something like a messenger. Groaning, Auntie sat up. She reached for a mug of water on the nightstand and with a spoon tapped at the film of ice that had formed during the night. Auntie, I asked, how can you make a heart forget? Auntie took a sip from her mug, wincing at the sting of the cold water on her teeth. Slowly, she shuffled to the closet where she stretched to unhook the shaggy bathrobe that hung on the door. As she slipped into the robe, a hidden smile tugged at the sides of her mouth. The story of the great forgetting was one of my favorites, and Auntie savored the retelling of a town in the Carpathian Mountains where the people had been pillaged for so many centuries that they knew no joy. Tugging the belt snug on her robe, Auntie spoke, and as she did, the white hairs on her chin glistened in the dresser's lamp light. They prayed for years to forget the past until they no longer believed God listened. Then one day, the youngest child in the village awoke to find a perfectly round egg in his crib. Word spread of this marvel. Within hours, the villagers forgot everything, not only their grief, but the curves of their beloved's face, their children's names. They stumbled through the streets, meeting neighbors, childhood friends, their very own father or mother, as if meeting that person for the first time. Their only memory was of the babe finding the oddly shaped egg. Don't hurt the child, a big, fat, shiny black crow squawked. Auntie bent her arms like wings and flapped them. We both smiled in pleasure. Auntie loved telling the story, and the way she spoke, I loved to listen. When Auntie came to America as a little girl, her grammar school trained the Ukrainian accent out of her a different kind of forgetting. But if you listened carefully, you could still hear the sounds of her first language lilting her words. Auntie dropped her arms and continued, but as soon as the snows melted, the healthiest of the young men carried the tot to a mountain crag. There they left him to die, and by the following dawn, marauders conquered the village, slaying every person, young or old. Now only the story of what happened to the town remains. Andy touched one of the colorful wooden icons on her dresser top and made the sign of the cross backwards. Auntie was great uncle's wife and we loved her, but she wasn't raised Catholic. Daddy said that wasn't her fault because the place she was born was so horrible even God left it. But Auntie said her hometown in the Ukraine was a garden of Eden until an iron curtain closed around it, making it impossible to go back. They say home is where the heart is, Auntie often said. That means I'll never see my heart again. While Auntie rummaged in her top drawer for the heavy woolen she wore under her house dress, I charged out from the covers, reaching for my red woolen coat on the chair. Slipping into it, I waited for the magic of its heat as I stood by the window, watching the early morning twilight give way to dawn. In the distance, hovering above the fields, was a mist that I imagined was the ghost of the family curse coming to get us, even though I knew the mist was caused by the fire burning beneath the ground. Thinking of ghosts made me think again of the Holy Ghost with its tongues of flame, and I quivered with excitement at the thought that something important would happen that day. And I'll stop there. Wow, one more round of applause for Natalie. That was...
Man, I love your descriptions, and I'm thinking about the, uh, you know, I think we all have the memory of cutting up a worm and seeing that it still like lives a little bit, describing the mother that way. Um, I also really want to hear more about that speakeasy. Yeah, uh, that sounds fun. Um, that was great. Thank you for opening the night. Uh, so I do want to uh, just tell you a, a little bit more something about our special night here, one year anniversary. Uh, really proud in, I don't know, it was a couple weeks ago or something, in the fiction issue of Time Out New York, we were listed as one of the, uh, what is it? One of the coolest reading series in New York City. I said, Thank you, Time Out. Um, so Time Out sent us a cake. No, they didn't. They didn't send us a cake. But we do have a cake, um, and we really like to support the local businesses here in Queens. So this is from 50 Stir 51st Bakery and Cafe here in Long Island City. It's a tasty cake. Julian knows. It's, mm, it's a moist chocolate cake. It's really good. Yeah. And, uh, and it's sitting up here, and you could admire it, and we're going to eat it after the event. And we have enough for everybody, So and I have gummy bears. Just um, all right, we're gonna keep it rolling here with Jonathan Lee. Uh, you guys, Jonathan Lee's novel High Dive just came out. It's last month, right? Published last month, I think on March eighth was the publication date. Is that right? That's amazing. Good research. Yeah, I did my research. I know my writers. Um, I just want to mention this book has gotten so much so much amazing, well-deserved praise that I just have to share some of it with you. Um, I mean, from places like The Guardian and Vice, BuzzFeed, Daily Mail, Houston Chronicle, Financial Times. Um, Catherine Lacey wrote in the Paris Review that Lee moves with ease between the epic and the intimate and that this book is full of humor and compassion. At the Wall Street Journal said it's highly amusing and ultimately very moving. And in the New York Times called it devastating and inspired says we make so many complex emotional investments in the lives of Mr. Lee's characters that takes a monk's restraint not to flip to the very end of the book before you get there. So you're going to read the very end of the book for us. Is it? I hope so. Um, Jonathan's a British writer whose recent fiction has appeared in Tin House, Granta, and a public space, among other, other magazines. High Dive is his first novel to be published in the United States. He lives in Brooklyn, where he is a um, senior editor at Catapult. Um, which is actually in Manhattan, but you are a senior editor at Catapult, but you live in Brooklyn, so you actually do the commute from borough to borough. No, I, I may have edited it wrong. And also, also a contributing editor for Guernica. Let's give a round of applause to Jonathan. Um, so I was trying to think of a Queen's anecdote today, but I've, I've only been to Queen's twice before. And one of those times was LaGuardia. And um, I, I understand that's not representative of the great things about Queens. So I'm going to have more anecdotes after tonight. But um, I went into a Wikipedia rabbit hole where I found that Queens... Is that okay? It's the only time anyone's had to put up the mic when I've done a reading. Um, I found that Queens was named after one of my people. So I came to apologize for that. So... <laughs> Um, let me look at her name. She was a queen. Um, queen Catherine of Braganza, who was a 17th century Portuguese princess who had the misfortune of marrying Charles II. 
who was more obsessed with his cocker spaniels, which is why there is the King Charles Spaniel now as a breed. That was the second Wikipedia article I looked at for you guys. <laughs> <clears throat> and um, yeah, so, so she was so popular that uh, when the English were interfering with New York, my understatement of what we were doing over here, um, they decided to call Queens, Queens County. They decided to call this area Queens County in the same way that Kings County had been named. Uh, and then I started to write um, a poem about her because she was so inspirational, but I only started one hour and 40 minutes ago. And I, and I, <laughs> and, um, I only have the opening, but I just want to give you a flavor in case like the poetry editor of the New Yorker is here or something like that. Because <laughs> I know he has really great taste in poetry right now. <laughs> so this is, um, and this, this manages to get, I hope you appreciate the cleverness of this bold opening because it refers, it refers to a, uh, a movie that I understand is set in Queens as well. So this is, so it's like, it's called Ode to Queen Catherine of Braganza. Married to Charles II is the, is the catchy title. <clears throat> and it starts like this. Before Eddie Murphy came to America and put a distance between us, you were the first person to judge the cleanliness of the royal penis. <laughs> There's more, but I think I'll... <laughs> That was the strongest bit. So, <laughs> um, so I'm just going to read a couple of pages from High Dive. And uh, most of the book is kind of irrelevant to the title. Um, it's about the weeks leading up to the bombing of a hotel in England in 1984. It was a real thing that happened in an attempt to assassinate Margaret Thatcher. And um, one of the, in, in my telling of it, I tried to kind of reanimate some of the characters in the build-up to the bombing, some of the people who were caught up in it. And this is about a character called Moose, who is the deputy general manager of the hotel, and his daughter. And he's kind of out of shape, but he used to be in shape. So they're at a swimming pool, and it's a couple of pages about like high diving, but also other marginal sports, like writing. <laughs> 7 a.m. at the public pool, making good on his promise. Exercise, exercise. While he was exercising, he was doing as his daughter advised. Around him were splashes and shouts, and the clunky suck of wet feet walking. And shoulder deep in water, a thought came unrequested. Why not try a dive? It had been a long time since Moose's diving days. Confidence gets thin. He couldn't picture himself doing the somersaults of old, but neither did he feel he belonged in the shallow end over there with the loose-skinned oldies discussing Terry Connor and cancer. These men were the work of a half-hearted taxidermist. Age had just emptied them out. And five breathless lengths he'd spent trying to keep up with his daughter, and it dampened a guy's esteem to be panting after just five lengths. He hauled himself out of the pool and joined the queue for the tower, a line of lean boys waiting for a dive. Wearing swimming trunks rescued from his 30s, Moose was a magnet for their smirks, but fair enough, 
It was nice to be a magnet for something. <laughs> Is that Carl? Yeah. <laughs> I like him so much already. There was a time when his stomach was a thing of alien precision, crunches, kettlebell windmills, prone plank, and would any of these kids believe it? Why were they even awake at this hour? He thought the lady over there might be a teacher of some sort. Overhead, a body fell through the air. Now the high dive platform was a long grey tongue stretching out from the top of the tower, 10 metres, three storeys high, a near vertical metal ladder was the only way up, and he stood in line and tried to pretend he was still bored. Freya swam to the edge of the pool and watched him, head bobbing, a beautiful person he'd made, and in response he extended his spine, puffed out his chest. He hoped he was becoming father-shaped. She continued swimming, <laughs> touching the wall, turning, breaking away, all of her freedom unthinking. Last night's ale had begun thudding in his head, squashing fine memories of mozzarella. <laughs> when it came his turn to climb, each rung was cold and hard and oddly unfamiliar under his feet. He took two rest stops to let out his smoker's cough. Above him, the grubby glass ceiling, September clouds breaking up beyond it, sunlight restless on tiles. There used to be a second pool next door where the women had to go. A few years ago, they floated over badminton, and up high now, you could hear the dull pop-pop of the shuttlecock, the scribble squeak of fast-moving shoes. Blinking, he clambered to stand. That first look around is such a shot of eerie beauty. It took him straight into his past. Chlorine gave the air up here a hazy, uncrackable quality, everything chemical blue, and the only higher creature was a seagull relaxing in the rafters. Trapped and relaxed, it made no sense to Moose. The kid in front of him had loosely knitted limbs, that slouchy bellboy way of making youth seem like a secret, and when he reached the end of the platform, this kid pulled a pair of red goggles over his mop of dark hair, and he said, so, do you think my watch will make it? This says, like, 10 meters resistant. <laughs> Should be okay, Moose said. Yeah? Yeah. As Red Goggles retied the cords of his shorts, Moose inevitably gave in to the impulse to look down. He was surprised to find himself beginning to reel. Arms out for balance. Take a breath. With slow caution, he glanced again. A number of coloured floats and armbands down there now, the landlord of the cricketers flirting with a hefty lady. Freya was standing on the tiled lip of the pool, arms crossed. This was a place of echoes and the achievement of private targets. If someone's foot touched her foot down there, they apologised profusely. It was supposed to be only two at a time up here, but with Red Goggles hesitating, trembling, a new person arrived on the platform. He was a squat coat can of a man on whom a desperately stretched swimming cap sat. The last, re the last reading I did, my editor came up to me afterwards and was like, we definitely should have cut that line. He was a squat coat can of a man on whom a desperately stretched swimming cap sat. The first thing he did was explain he didn't have all day. Then he looked around, his knees seemed to go soft, and with a shudder and a muttered fuck, he took the ladder back down. <laughs> when Moose had stopped smiling, it occurred to him to do the same, because pride before a fall. 
Red Goggles was finally primed to jump. Fear does not exist in this dojo, he cried. <laughs> and with that mysterious announcement, he cannonballed out of sight. He wailed all the way down, and the impact when it came was closer to a crash than a splash. Sparks of water flew up. The surface healed. Always does. The way the warm platform eats up the evidence of your presence, the way it shrinks your footprints to the size of a child's, and then an animal's, and then a nothing. The water was a tiny cool blue sheet that seemed, in these moments, to want to break your smallest bones. His heart was beating light and fast, a shift of cloud threw half the pool into shadow. On the tip of the platform were two dusky oval shapes formed by all the feet that had gone before. He settled his soles on these ovals. He blinked to stop the walls turning. He did his first high dive at the age of 12. He was looking at his own awkward knees then and rubbing his sweaty palms against his stomach, his father cheering him on from below. His father, who seemed to come alive when watching his son succeed, a man usually so carefully contained within himself, shy and jokey and perhaps a little bitter, sharp features that made his moods look worse than they were. Hurl yourself into the soundless blue, or take the ladder back down. No, 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 and yes, yes, yes. Oh, fuck it. He always was an overthinker. And he was only 45, and there was nothing much wrong with his muscles. And Moose now found the arrogance to bounce, to ask the air for eloquence. Just like he used to do over and over when competing at a meet. As his feet began to leave the platform, he knew he was only getting half the push he used to get, but he was up now, up, his blood hurtling through his body, the friction of travel in his teeth. Yeah, he thought, this is what it's like. Loosely bound to the room around him now, held by no ties at all, everything was hushed and hesitant as it is before an accident. He tucked into a messy somersault. He sort of drew his knees into his chest. His fingertips sort of touched his shins. Sky, tiles, the whole gleaming ceiling of this old public pool. His body thinned as he arced down into it with the beauty, the overdetermination of a dream. Back straight, toes together, hands sort of angled to make a hole he could climb inside. The water opened without protest. The warm green world took his weight. Underwater advice from his old coach, Wally, always came to mind. Bending your back gets your shins to vertical. Spreading your arms stops air bubbles breaking upward. Heart beating quick in the deep, feeling himself starting to smile, water creeping in through his lips as he awarded himself a seven out of ten. <laughs> Moose lingered beneath the surface a little longer than is necessary, it is true, enjoying the leggy shadows and the livid pools of light. But then he did break into the sharp air and drew breath and blurred shapes became precise and the lifeguards seemed to be clapping and the boy next to red goggles cried, skill. <laughs> Poolside he stood tall, water streaming from his body. Show off, his daughter said. Sportsman, he replied, panting. Big splash. Untrue. No water left in the pool, Dad. 
He risked a glance at the tank and he saw that it was full. He told her she wasn't a very supportive daughter. In response, she touched a throbbing vein in his shoulder. Huh, she said, very thoughtfully. There were moments when love burned up in his throat and he didn't quite know how to move. Big round of applause for Jonathan and that awesome reading. I love the, um, the whisper of mozzarella and <laughs> the memory of mozzarella. Yeah, a horror film made of cheese. Also, I think that maybe everyone before you ever read One from more your fabulous work, reader to hear out. from there tonight. No and I'm in this super dojo. pumped, especially because, I mean, come on, the name of his book is The Queen of the Night. The Queen of the Night. And here we are in Queens, and he's going to read from this in Queens. Uh, it's amazing. Oh, and, and, then, uh, and then Jonathan Lee's going to write another poem about it. Okay, that's good. Um, I just want to say, so this, this writer, Alexander Chi, uh, uh, Juno Diaz actually praised him as the fire, in my opinion, and the light, which is some... We're about to hear from the fire and the light, you guys. We're like, we're in LSE Reading Series Church right now. Uh, <laughs> Um, also, just, just some words about this novel, Queen of the Night. Uh, Karen Russell, who wrote Swamp Blonde, Blon I can't talk tonight, Swamplandia and Vampires in Lemon Grove said, Alexander Chi packs his extraordinary second novel, The Queen of the Night, to the seams with music, love, misery, and secrets. The kind of book, world, characters, you could live inside happily for days and days and never once want to come up for air. That's pretty cool. That's kind of like diving into your book. I mean, I'm just going to tie you to Jonathan Lee as many times as possible tonight. No. Um, anyway, uh, Alexander Chi is the author of the novels Edinburgh and the recently published The Queen of the Night. He's a contributing editor at The New Republic and an editor at large at VQR. His essays and stories have appeared in the New York Times Book Review, Tin House, Slate, Guernica, NPR, and Out, among others. He's a winner of a 2003 Whiting Award, a 2004 NEA Fellowship in Prose, and a 2010 MCCA fellowship, taking all the awards, Mr. Alexander Chi, that's amazing. And residency fellowships from the McDowell Colony, the VCCA, Civitella Ranieri, and Amtrak. He has taught writing at Wesleyan University, Amherst College, the University of Iowa Writers Workshop, Columbia University, Sarah Lawrence College, and the University of Texas, Austin. He lives in New York City, where he curates the Dear Reader series at Ace Hotel, New York. Let's give a big round of applause for Alexander Chi. Thank you so much. Um, my queen story is, <laughs> right, even the dog is afraid already. Um, so one of the first jobs that I had in New York, actually the first job I had in New York, was uh, working as a uh, as a bookseller at a different line books. But when I arrived from San Francisco, I had worked at the San Francisco store. Um, they had just acquired a warehouse 
of LGBT books from a mail order place in Queens. And so they said, we need you to go catalog the warehouse. So that was what I did for the first two months that I lived in New York City in 1991 in the fall. And I was living in Williamsburg, taking the train to Queens. And I remember the first day that I went, there was a New York Post uh, that I was reading that had an article about this bar fight in Queens where uh, someone pulled a gun and three other people in the bar also had guns. (laughs) And they all started shooting. (laughs) It was a horrifying bloodbath. And I was like, all right, don't get a drink in Queens. <laughs> um, so, uh, but here I am in a Queens bar years later, all is well, not dead. Um, and that warehouse was a wonderful place for me. It was this incredible uh, repository of all these books that later became really important to me. So. Um, because basically just being left alone with a warehouse of books for me just meant <laughs> a lot of reading <laughs> when I was on the clock. So anyway, um, that is my queen story. Uh, just to make this interesting, I'm going to read a section that I don't usually rank, uh, read from. And... Uh, I will set it up slightly. Is this even the book I wrote? (laughs) Okay, so um, I call this my uncanny opera novel. Um, It's not, strictly speaking, a realist enterprise, but anyway. Um, uh, It's essentially about an opera singer who believes that her voice is cursed and it causes the uh, the fates of the characters she performs to take over her life. And so at this point in the story, um, she, uh, she has been approached by a writer who mysteriously seems to know all about her and has written a novel that seems to be about her and he's turning it into an opera that he wants her to perform in. And he doesn't seem to know that it's her that he has done this to. So she's trying to figure out which of the people in her past is responsible. And uh, in this section, uh, she's remembering um, when she was in the service of uh, the woman who was on the cover, the Comtesse de Stiglione, who was uh, a part of the Italian embassy in Paris, and she was sent with the mission of seducing the of seducing Napoleon III, um, so as to secure his um, support for the cause of Italian unification. Um, she was also incredibly beautiful and incredibly vain, and probably a spy master, which is the reason for this plot. <laughs> so this is an incredibly long lead up. Um, This used to be the way I began the novel. For a long time, I thought this was the beginning of the novel. Um, And and now it's on a page 151. (laughs) Anyway. 
Here we go. It is said there were 400 Italian assassins hidden in Paris, each sworn to take the emperor's life if he wavered in his support for the cause of Italian unification. 400 Italian assassins, and then there was me. As the Empress Eugenie didn't fit in the dark basement passageways of the Tuileries Palace once she was dressed, her many gowns were delivered there instead, where they were stored and then sent up on dressmaker's forms and a dumbwaiter to an antechamber where she would dress quickly like an actress and make her grand imperial entrances. I arrived at the Tuileries in the early fall of 1868, a girl of 17, there from the Saint-Denis convent to work as one of the maids in the palace basement wardrobe, a grisette. The name means little gray one or gray girl. I liked the word because it made me feel as if I'd become a shadow, working as I did in the basement of the Tuileries and sleeping in a small room in its eaves. L'imperatrice, that was the word for empress, and there was just the one. That word stayed in the air a little after it was said, a kind of glittering dark omen. The guard said it as she made her way through the crowd, or we said it in a fierce whisper, a signal to stop what you were doing and throw yourself to the ground in her general direction. Once I heard it, every moment I was not in the ground was one in which I felt my life might be forfeit. This dismayed her, I believe, though, of course, it was done to please her. She never said it. Even the Empress, I think, feared this word. The ladies of her court wore her badge on their left shoulder, tied there with a ribbon. Three wore her portrait, painted in miniature, circled in diamonds. These were her most powerful, the most senior. The Duchesse de Bassano, Princess de Essling, and Madame Marat, widow of Admiral Marat, and Gouvernante des Enfants de France, her title made me think of her as the ruler of a small kingdom of French orphan children, bordered in sorrow. The other nine wore her monogram, diamond letters on a black enamel background, I for Imperatrice, E for Eugenie, an I stepping through an E as if someone had plunged daggers into the E from above and below. She could not choose her ladies-in-waiting. Some were her friends, but many were not. Two were with her at all times for a week at a time in Paris, a month if she went to the country. Peppa, though, she could choose. Peppa belonged to her. Peppa was the mistress of Her Majesty's wardrobe, a fellow Spaniard. She was squat, ugly, fierce, and strong, brought by Eugenie to Paris from Malaga. She might have been pitiable, but for the rages she used to enforce her ways. If beauty didn't make you good, Peppa was proof ugliness didn't either. She was assisted by two sisters, the daughters of the governor of the Chateau de St. Cloud. The governor had once been the emperor's jailer, and his appointment and that of his daughters was meant to repay the man for the trouble the emperor had made for him by escaping from his jail. But obeying Peppa offended the sisters, and as there was something each of them would not do, a girl was needed who could not refuse. So it was I came to the Tuileries. I was known to them as Sidonie from the orphanage of the Legion of Honor of Saint-Denis Convent, chosen for this work as I was small, young, quick, and believed to be mute. The Chamberlain felt it best to find someone incapable of speaking back to either Peppa or the sisters. I undertook my responsibilities gladly, eager to confirm for them that they had chosen well. I quickly proved handy at climbing inside the dumbwaiter and wrangling the dress forms into place without either tearing the silk swaths of the enormous skirts or dirtying them on the walls of the chute. 
The skirts or the bodices or both were often jeweled, sometimes took a month to make, and were never washed. You couldn't clean something studded with diamonds and water and soap. The Empress wore during the fall and winter the high season of the balls as many as four dresses in a day, and the single finest, most expensive one was always for the New Year's ball. The seconds, as they were known to us once they'd been worn, were often stripped of their gems and given out to the poorer relations of ladies-in-waiting, or sometimes, if it was not too expensive, one would be given as a present to a favorite servant, someone unlikely to wear it in her presence. And so we took great care with each dress before she wore it, as it was hers, and then great care afterward, in case it was to be one of ours. The dressmaker's forms were made just to the size of her, and she was measured every season for them. One was sent up dressed, the other empty for the dress she'd take off. When the door to the lift opened, there were always the two dummies side by side, the one bare, the other in the recently quitted dress or gown. They looked to me like two headless women, and it always gave me pause. Given how much the Empress worshipped her forerunner, Marie Antoinette, I can't imagine she didn't think of it. But Eugenie was Spanish and Louis Napoleon not quite French either. There was not much French in him or any Napoleon for that matter. That would mean many things in the course of their lives, but I think most of all, it meant they didn't entirely understand how it was with France and her rulers and how it had always been, how it might always be. From my arrival, I was concerned almost entirely with Her Majesty's furs. They were heavy, and even if well cured, the animal musk of them made the air of their room thick and close. This was where Pepa and the sisters refused to go most often. These were not given away like the gowns, and if they resented this fact, Pepa and the sisters ignored them all the more. My French was of a very odd kind at this time. I knew curses and sexual positions, how to ask for a drink, and then a few more words from lyrics. At the convent, I had added prayers and psalms, but in written form only. Should be said at this point in the novel, she is entirely faking being mute, not so much being an orphan. Um, <clears throat> what I had learned there, I often knew neither how things were said nor what they sounded like, and I learned as I could only by listening. When I was presented to Pepe and the sisters on that first day, for example, I understood very little of what they said to me. Pepa's French was thickly accented by her Spanish in a way I found charming. It would be the only thing I ever found charming about her. The very stout Spaniard and the two slender, quiet Frenchwomen seemed at something of a loss when I only nodded to everything they said. But, of course, this was the loss the Chamberlain had in mind, had even hoped for. When the Chamberlain indicated that I was mute, they stared as if it were something they could see. They then walked me through the basement kingdom, showed me the dress dummies, the boxes of pins, the dumbwaiter, the bell that would ring for me, enunciating everything carefully. And then they brought me to the room where the furs were kept. Pippa gestured with a sideways grin to me. I couldn't tell the source of her pleasure exactly. I could only think it was because her time in this room was done as mine began. A list of the furs the Empress abandoned when she fled the Tuileries was published in the British newspapers shortly after the end of the empire. One swan's down cloak lined with silver fox, one black velvet mantle trimmed with marten sable, one black velvet circular cloak lined and trimmed with chinchilla, one black velvet pelisse lined with weasel with sable collar, one otter skin cloak, one blue cashmere opera cloak lined with swan's down, 
One black cashmere opera cloak lined with swan's down. One hunting waistcoat lined with chinchilla. One black silk bodice lined with chinchilla. One gray silk bodice lined with chinchilla. One marabou muff. One sable muff. One silver fox muff. One ermine muff. One otter muff. One otter's head muff. <laughs> one Martin sable boa. One collar of sable tails. One collar of Martin sable heads. One pair of chinchilla cuffs. One pair of silver fox cuffs. One green velvet wrap lined with Canadian fur. One carpet of Tibet goatskin. One white sheepskin carpet. One set of otter trimming. Two caracos of Spanish lambskin. Eight and three quarter yards of chinchilla trimming. 27 yards of sable tail trimming. One front and a piece of black fox. Four strips, a waistband, two pockets, two sleeves, and one trimming of black fox. Two swans down skins in pieces. 14 silver fox skins. Six half skins of silver fox. 20 silver fox tails. One otter collar. Three tails of Canadian fur. Two marabou collars. Some odd pieces of chinchilla. Four large carpets of black bearskin. Two small carpets of black bearskin. One brown bear with head. One stuffed bear. One white fox rug. One caraco, one petticoat, and one waistcoat of chestnut colored plush trimmed with otter. 19 and three quarters yards of otter trimming. Two pheasants skins. Three white sheepskin stools, one sable dress trimming, three sable skins, two squares of chinchilla, one weasel tippet, and two cuffs to match, two pieces swans down, two pheasant wings, one stuffed fox, one pair of otter gloves, three and a half yards of skunk trimming, two court mantles bordered with ermine. I knew they'd publish this list to shame her. <laughs> I knew they'd publish this list to shame her, but as many furs as were found, I knew well there'd been many more. As often as not, under one of those ermine court mantles, Eugenie wore only a flannel wrapper brought with her from Spain. It made the emperor quite cross when he would look over and see a bit of it showing. I sometimes wanted to explain to the emperor that he had married a horsewoman, but if he didn't know it, it wasn't for me to tell him. He'd admired her horsewomanly ways, having fallen in love with her on a hunting party at the Chateau Compiègne, meant to be six days that became eleven. At the end of it, he gave her the horse he, she rode in the hunt, and an emerald pin shaped as a clover leaf and covered in small diamonds in memory of a moment when she'd paused to admire a clover after the rain. He had it made in Paris while the hunt went on, and it arrived in time to be his token to her. For all any of us know, he had the hunt extended so as to give this to her before she left all of them waiting while the jeweler did his work and the emperor his. She lives now outside London, having escaped the mobs that screamed for her death. A few of her loyal subjects had rushed her from the palace in the first moments after the emperor's capture and the fall of the empire. Like Louis Philippe before her, she was rushed from the palace to London in a disguise on the yacht of a British dentist. I wondered how it felt to her if she'd read the list of her furs, if she missed any of it at all, 
or if she was content to wear as much flannel as she liked now over there in England, the emperor and the prince dead. I had a pang on reading the list of missing my life there. I thought of the Tuileries and how the enormous buildings of the palace looked to me sometimes, like the cars of enormous trains. I missed walking toward them in the night and knowing there was a small room for me within where I could close the door and vanish, no one knowing who I was or where. In those days, the emperor and empress were both everything in my life and nothing to me, for I never saw them. I wasn't among the servants who were close to her physically, though through my work I had to know constantly the intimate details of her life, if she had gained or lost weight, if she was with menses, angry or sad or in good humor. Each day had a schedule to it, determined by her events, when she would need this or that dress or gown or fur, and when she would no longer need them. It was not constant drudgery, but instead there were short periods of intense work and then long stretches with nothing to do. Nothing of my life mattered then, except that I be present according to my schedule, which I received weekly with some changes daily, the times I was to climb inside the dumbwaiter and get the dress on. The hours were very irregular, as the parties could go late into the night or early morning, though usually her ladies' maids would leave the night's last dress in the dumbwaiter, and we were to rise and send up the new one before the empress woke. We knew, for example, when she was wearing the flannel underneath, as there would be no requests, nothing for us to do, when the schedule clearly said something like Ambassador du Brasil. I felt she let her flannel show to punish his majesty for how he met for hours on matters of state with his secretaries every night, which is to say his whores, his wives of other politicians and royals, their daughters, women who were often imagined, women who often imagined they could be his next Eugenie. As this was conducted below, his first Eugenie wandered the upper galleries and halls of the palace alone, with little or no hope of seeing him, visiting her courtiers in their apartments and playing with their children, always staying too late. No one could send her out. She was the empress, and she was very lonely without her emperor. And yet, because it would be dangerous for her to have a lover, in case she was to bear a false heir, her movements were carefully guarded by secret police. None of the young women who wanted her position knew what her position was. Thank you. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.